0: Hallelujah. O oh, Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ the chains of death are broken for all of your children. Your scriptures say, they assure us in Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and faith, the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Father, we celebrate our Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, and our perfect sacrifice, who in his death, took on flesh, and was born of a woman who went to Calvary to absorb the wrath that was due our sins. In his death, he became the propitiation for the sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham, the covenant forefather, because Christ has grafted us in. We are no longer held captive by the power of death, And the plans of the devil and the wages of our sin. But we through Jesus Christ have been delivered from the fear of death. And the chains of that slavery to the wages of sin have clattered to our feet. in our repentance and turning to Christ. Who took on flesh and blood and took on our sin for us. And destroyed in that one act on Calvary. The one who has the power of death, the devil. And that which laid claim to our souls, our sin. And we thank you, Father, for these things. In Christ, we are free, free indeed. In Christ, we have life and life more abundantly. In Christ, we have the assurance of our eternal home. And this is what we celebrate today. As we turn to your scriptures to remind our souls of the incredible assurance of the gospel, I pray that our hearts would be open and that our lives would reflect these truths in confidence and praise as you lead us and guide us in the way everlasting unto the glorification of our souls one day, ascending with Christ unto glory to our heavenly home. In the meantime, Father, we pray for courage and strength and boldness to proclaim as the first generation of believers did, imbued by the power from on high, the Holy Spirit proclaiming That Christ alone is our hope. Christ alone is our salvation. Open our ears to hear your scriptures in this day by the power of that same Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, saints, let me greet you with this historic greeting. He is risen. One more time. He is risen. Amen. This has been the testimony of the church for over 2,000 years because of the history-transforming moment of the work of Christ which culminated in the great crescendo of His resurrection and defeat of death and our sin and His ascension and coronation in glory. This message rung from the lips the proclamation and from the pulpits of the Christian church from day one after the Holy Spirit visited from on high at the Feast of Pentecost, when the first wave of Christians began to proclaim that all of history has changed. And forever now, the message of hope in Jesus Christ is assured in His death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and His coronation in glory. It is to this passage or this moment in history that we turn today in our passage for preaching, and I invite you to turn there in Acts chapter 2, 22 through 38. Acts chapter 2. Here we have recorded, I submit to you, the first resurrection sermon. This is the Apostle Peter after the Holy Spirit has descended upon the church, when they waited for the promise of His coming, and then the indication of this uh, fulfillment was manifest in a rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire on their head, and the gospel going forth in every tongue known in Jerusalem at that time, and then followed by Peter's words, giving explanation for this momentous occasion in history, Peter's first resurrection, and the church I submit, first resurrection sermon. The goal of my sermon today is to simply echo what he did so many years ago, to proclaim the resurrection glory of Christ according to apostolic precedent. With that introduction, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? Consider these truths in your hearing from Acts chapter 2, 22 through 38. Here is the word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus Also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, For David did not ascend unto the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let out all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What a privilege, what a gift to echo these words that were proclaimed in the open air, into the ears of the hearers of this first generation as the news of Jesus' resurrection and his powerful gospel was going forth. Little likely did most realize at this time that these very words would be proclaimed more than two millennia later, even from this pulpit, and no doubt numerous pulpits around the world, as we celebrate in the Christian church Traditionally, this time of year, that momentous occasion where our sin and death was defeated in the resurrection of our Savior and Lord. The same theme of this, the first resurrection sermon, if you will, in Acts chapter 2. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter's Pentecost sermon proclaims Jesus incarnate, Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected, Jesus ascended, and Jesus enthroned, and Jesus receiving as an inheritance all the kingdoms of this earth. Peter's message was preceded by Jesus' own self-disclosure and covenant revelation in Luke 24, 13-35. I want to draw a connection to the verses that we just read and this passage in Luke. If you recall, between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he was with the church 40-some days, and among his acts during this time, with his glorified body yet to be ascended, he gave instructions to two very fortunate souls. These disciples found themselves traveling on the road to Emmaus with the most glorious of all travel companions. It says in Luke twenty four, thirteen, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Him, but they listened. Says 17, He said to them, What is this conversation they are holding with each other as you walk? As the story proceeds, we find that Jesus begins to explain to them all that they had witnessed in their eyes and ears in recent days. In verse 27, He says the following, or 24 at 6, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And here it is, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a glorious moment that must have been. What a conversation, what a Bible study that must have been. Peter's message was preceded by Jesus' own self-disclosure and covenant revelation to just two people in Luke twenty-four, thirteen through 35. On this occasion, between his resurrection and ascension, Jesus or explained to these his two hearers, how the scriptures speak of him, the entirety, all of them, from the prophets to Moses, the interpretation of all the scriptures concerning himself, the word says. And maybe you fall into this camp, I know I have in the past, many have wondered and speculated, what was the content of Jesus' words on the road to Emmaus? Wouldn't it have been uh, amazing Oh, to be a fellow traveler, eavesdropping on the greatest Bible study of all time, you or others might have exclaimed. But I submit to you, saints, that we can virtually listen in to Jesus' own exposition of the Scriptures as we read the sermons of the book of Acts and the testimony of the the early apostles. What was among the things that Jesus proclaimed to the disciples in the road to Emmaus were indeed, I submit to you, the truths that we heard proclaimed from the mouth of Peter in Acts 22, 22 through 38. After all, the same Spirit of God certainly revealed through Peter to the crowds at Pentecost the truths that Jesus had disclosed to those two traveling disciples, whoever they were. Peter's first resurrection sermon is preserved in the book of Acts in part as a sample of the content of Jesus' revelation and words to his captive hearers on that day, traveling in the presence of the resurrected, soon-to-be-ascended Savior. Remember, what was the inspiration for Peter's message? The Holy Spirit had just visited the church. Acts chapter 2 opens this way, when the day of Pentecost arrived, verse 1, they were all gathered in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And it goes on to say, with this manifest presence of God identified by tongues of fire and many people speaking many languages, not just the house was filled with the Holy Spirit, but so were his disciples. Indeed, Peter inspired and filled with the Holy Spirit the indwelling of the promised comforter that Jesus said he would send, which was better for them than if he had stayed behind. They had just been, Peter had just been, and those with him in the upper room, miraculously visited by this event, the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Pentecost had imbued Peter with the Holy Spirit And as it did so, Peter rose to proclaim the truth of the resurrection. Peter's first resurrection sermon, therefore, is a powerful example of spirit-filled preaching from Old and New Testament gospel glories. And this is what we behold in our text today. So let me suggest verses 22 through 24 provide a great outline for Peter's sermon. And then around these verses and some of what the apostles had experienced in recent days and years, will fill out what he is uh, saying with context, and that will form our structure for our sermon today. Peter preaches Jesus attested by. You could use that for a heading. Peter preaches Jesus attested by. That means testified to, or made obvious by, or revealed by, four things. Number one, his ministry. Number two, his prophetic word. Number three, his nature. And number four, his gospel. According to Peter, Jesus is attested by his ministry, the ministry of Jesus. He is attested by his prophetic word. Two quotes from the Psalms are cited. Thirdly, his nature, who is Jesus Christ. And fourthly, his gospel, the message of his resurrection. And more specifically, these four points relate to his resurrection in the following ways. His ministry, contains the context of his resurrection. His prophetic word, like these messianic psalms, contain prophecies of his death and resurrection. His nature proclaims to us the necessity of his resurrection. And finally, his gospel is the message of his resurrection. So that is the structure of our message today. And as I submit to you, the first resurrection sermon, which Peter preached, to the crowds so boldly on this, the day of Pentecost. Verse 22, he opens this section of his speaking by addressing his hearers as men of Israel, shouting to them as I hear it in my mind's ear, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with what? Mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then verse 25 continues with the citation from a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 16. But in those three verses, 22 through 24, we have the body of his message, so to speak. He says that Christ was attested to us, firstly, by works, wonders, and signs. This would be his ministry. Peter preaches a Jesus. He preaches the Jesus attested by, testified to, or revealed by his ministry. His ministry, according to Peter in verse 22, contained these three elements which proclaimed who he was and the nature of his saving work. Among them, his works, his wonders, and his signs. His mighty works, in fact. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. This is just one example of a mighty work of Jesus Christ that preaches Him, Jesus, as the Lord over the grave. And we find this in the mighty work of His resurrection in these verses, Mark 5, 35-43, one of those moments where Jesus raises the dead. While He was speaking, there came... From the ruler's house, some who said, your daughter is dead. We read in verse 35. Why trouble the teacher any further? But over here in what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. You see already in the introduction of this mighty work of Jesus Christ, the assumption of those who are gathered in this place, those who have experienced this tragic moment, the loss of this daughter, this dead individual. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why would you exclaim with such a defeated phrase? Well, you know that death is final, and you know that there is no hope once an individual has to succumb to what Paul would later call the last enemy. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. Only believe what, you might ask? That there is one stronger than death? That there is one with resurrection, life, and the power of His Word. 37, and He allowed no one to follow Him except Peter, James, and John. Notice those He brought with Him to witness this mighty act. Peter, James, and John were there. The same Peter who proclaims to us that Jesus who has power over death in His sermon at Pentecost in our passage today. They came to the house, verse 38. arise 42 and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat regardless of the testimony how well they kept those instructions certainly peter knew what happened he had witnessed a mighty work of his savior the one who would later say at another resurrection event, the resurrection of Lazarus, in John 11:25, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Thus we see, according to Peter, that the ministry of Jesus provides the context of resurrection. <clears throat> we look to these examples of his mighty works, and we find with the Spirit drawing our attention to these truths that it is no surprise that he himself would rise from the dead. Peter references Jesus' ministry in his own message, and no doubt has the resurrection of this 12 year old girl, the resurrection of Lazarus, four days dead in Bethany, in mind as he proclaims Jesus Christ is risen. Yes, he is risen indeed. Mighty works. Furthermore, Jesus is attested to by his wonders. <clears throat> of course, these categories overlap, but let us consider another example of a wonder. In the same book of Mark, turn back to chapter 4. And consider 35 through 41. This is the story of Jesus calming the storm. On that day when, the evening, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Well, Peter answers in his message that this is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the one spoken of by David, the great King of old, that He is His Lord. Who is this that the wind and the seas obey Him? This is the one who with that same word created those winds and the seas in the first place in Genesis 1.1. This is the one who John introduces in his gospel as the forever word. The word was with God and the word was God. And by that word, all things were created. And that word came and dwelt and walked among us and in him is the light of life. Well, what was it that drew the disciples' attention to these unique qualities of Jesus? You know, his uh, countenance and his general Demeanor was unassuming to those who were not aware, but for those who had eyes to see in the preaching of his authoritative word and in the mighty miracles that they witnessed, his works and his wonders, they saw the creator of the universe recreating life out of nothing, raising the dead, and speaking to the creation that existed in the first place by the word of his power, commanding the untame-otherwise, untamable winds and seas, to be still in, by, in the name and by the word of Jesus Christ. These were his wonders. These were the wonders that inspired the disciples to fear. Is that a natural response? Well, I would think so. If you suddenly realize what you once assumed was a mere man, however great he may have been, traveling with you, now has the power. Now it is apparent to you that he has the power to command the waves and the the storm to cease, you realize how greatly, eternally, you have underestimated the nature, the character, the power, and the glory of the one who walks beside you uh, at this time. And so as the disciples have this growing awareness of the glories of Jesus Christ, they witness it in his ministry, in his mighty works, and in his wonders. Thirdly, signs, mighty works, wonders, and signs. Peter says that these are three categories in Jesus' ministry that sets the context or that establish the context of resurrection. They attest to Jesus as the one who has the power over the grave. And one sign I'd like to point you to in the work of Christ is happened in the resurrection itself, as recorded in the book of John, John chapter 20. These signs are all through the Gospels. But let me just highlight one. Perhaps you'll remember this moment, verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And as we continue to read in verse 18, it is apparent that Mary Magdalene's tears of sorrow turn into tears of joy, ecstatic rejoicing as she went and announced to the disciples in verse 18, I have seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. But did you notice in the record of this resurrection of this resurrection record as witnessed by Mary Magdalene there's a powerful sign I've mentioned this before but I never tire of pointing it out in verse 12 what did she see inside this tomb two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet this was an incredible sign where in the old testament kids do we see a spot where there's two angels one on one side and one on the other. Kids, could you uh, remind us? There was something in the temple and in the tabernacle that had two angels, one on one side, one on the other. What was it called? Anyone know? Two angels facing one another in the shape of a box. Does anyone remember? The Ark the Ark of the Covenant. That is correct. An angel on one side, an angel of the other. And kids, does anyone know what was in, the, in between those two angels? What was that called? It was a kind of seat. Does anyone know? Mercy seat. The mercy seat is correct. Thanks, Sonny. So notice this picture of God's abiding presence with His people that had been memorialized in the temple and tabernacle furniture all the way back from the days of Moses. You have an angel at the head, an angel at the foot, as it were, or angels facing one another, the Ark of the Covenant, and in between is the place of mercy, the mercy seat. This is where the atonement blood was sprinkled, and this was where the presence of God was manifest with his people, symbolizing the following. These angels were indeed a picture of the seraphim that would guard the presence of God from the unworthy and the unholy for all of time since the Garden of Eden. That flaming sword of God's judgment stood as a locked gate to the place of his presence. But there was a way, there was a door, there was entrance into the presence of God. But the key was the shed blood of His atoning work that would once again, or that would allow once again entry, free passage, safe passage into the realms of glory and communion with a holy God. And this, the mercy seat, was represented in in the sacrifices of old, and the atoning blood was shed, and when those conditions were met, and God's presence symbolically dwelt with his people in that Shekinah glory, signaling that they were in his favor once again. This powerful sign on the day when Mary Magdalene sees the empty tomb carries with it the fulfillment of that picture of old. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat, and by his atoning blood, so those angels indicate that presence the presence of God is open, but only through him. This is one of those amazing signs of fulfillment of old covenant pictures and the sacrificial order and so forth. And now as Mary Magdalene leaves and rejoices and announces that her Savior has risen, she not only has a message to bring that He is sovereign over death and has proved it in His resurrection, but He has also in His death accomplished the very conditions that allow us to enter into His presence forever. And thus by this and a thousand more signs, mighty works and wonders, the ministry of Jesus Christ attests to him. And so when Peter rises to address the men of Israel, proclaiming, hear these words, Jesus of of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. We have just these few examples and all the rest as the backdrop for his proclamation. Peter preaches Jesus attested by his ministry. Second major point. Peter preaches Jesus attested by his prophetic word. In verse 23 in Acts 2, we continue with his message. This Jesus, Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter preaches a gospel, and here there is, he references prophecies implicitly of Jesus' death and resurrection. He, rec- or he acknowledges this in three ways, two phrases and a citation. The phrases are definite plan and foreknowledge, and the citation comes from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, where Peter cites an example of a messianic psalm which prophesied Jesus' death and resurrection. Thus, Jesus was attested to by his prophetic word. Prophecies of his work of redemption are all through the old covenant. And Peter draws attention to that in his first great resurrection sermon. He says that according to the definite plan of God, these events took place. And though they involved the horrific sin of those who took up false accusation, took up the hammer that nailed Jesus to the cross, and the attitude of the rebel's which to a man rejected their savior and Messiah. Nevertheless, even all these that the church later acknowledged in chapter four, God had assembled according to his sovereign plan, served the purposes and the sovereign order of God's definite plan that the sacrifice, Jesus Christ, would be killed by the hands of sinners. But it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of a holy God to accomplish the very redemption of those who falsely accused him, rejected their Messiah, and nailed him to the tree if they would but turn like that centurion the day on his death and say, truly, this man is the Son of God. His definite plan. The Psalms of David are quoted twice in Peter's sermon, but his, in setting his precedent, this precedent, in this sermon, we find that Peter's eyes are opened by the Spirit, to that which Jesus opened the eyes of those on the road to Emmaus to, as we read in Luke 24. That is, that the Psalms of David speak of Jesus Christ. His example is Psalm 16, but consider one other one that reveals to us the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Psalm 22, a famous messianic psalm proclaiming to us that it was according to God's sovereign plan from before time began that Jesus would be crucified. There is striking prophetic language in this psalm that Jesus himself echoed when he hung on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The psalmist continues to lament this way. This, in fact, is a psalm of David. He continues with these striking points of prophecy. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He goes on, the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers do- encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. These we recognize immediately, do we not, as details that accompanied the condemnation and the crucifixion of Jesus our Lord. Not only did the soldiers divide his garments and cast lots for them, but they also pierced his hands and feet with the instrument of execution and torture, Roman crucifixion, as he was nailed to the cross of Calvary. Indeed, as he thirsted on the cross and as he felt the excruciating pain of this ordeal, we see that Jesus, according to the definite plan of God, was the fulfillment of the messianic lament thousands of years before in Psalm 22, right down to the cry which he himself echoed on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prophetic word of the Messianic Psalms illustrate that Peter preaches a Jesus attested by the prophecies of old. Prophecies that precisely and dramatically uh, foretold and illustrated the significance and meaning of that very act on Calvary. Prophecies that riddle uh, the Psalms and the rest of the Old Covenant as we've seen in the sacrificial system by the example of the mercy seat and a course among the prophets who proclaim a day of salvation and a coming of the Lord yet on the horizon. Conditions that they proclaimed such that only a Messiah who is sovereign over death could fulfill. Definite plan, foreknowledge. Peter himself quotes from Psalm 16. He says in Acts 2.25, For David says concerning him, quote, That the Spirit of God has awakened to his soul. That when David of old writes in the first person, like this is happening to him, he is assuming the voice of the lineage of the Messiah, if you will. David writes, so to speak, in the messianic first person. He writes as if he were his son one day. As he proclaims, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, prophetically, what will happen or events that will happen in Psalm 22 to the Messiah to come, or the nature of the Messiah to come himself. In Psalm 16, quoted here by Peter, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Thus, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God are attested to in the Messianic Psalms. Just four examples in our sermon today, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, later a reference as Peter does Psalm 110. These uh, three, and then also uh, others as well, if we have time to touch upon them. Definite plan foreknowledge. But then Peter himself explains what's going on in verse 29 of Acts 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that god had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the christ that he was not abandoned to hades nor did his flesh see corruption this jesus god raised up and of that we all are we all are witnesses so what does peter say well he acknowledges by the inspiration of the holy spirit that Uh, David was not writing about himself. Though he spoke in the first person, he was speaking prophetically. David was a prophet, according to Peter. And knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that a son of his would abide on the throne forever, Peter says that this resurrection sermon, long before he even spoke, was available to the enlightened hearer from Psalm 16. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. How do we know that Jesus would be resurrected? Well, in part, David himself prophesied it in Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon the soul of the Messiah to Hades or the place of death. Thus, the prophets and the covenant, the prophetic word, testify to the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't have the time to explore the connections from 2 Samuel 7 this morning, but in verses 12 through 17, if you want to mark them for further study, you'll see the record of the covenant given to David. And here, David himself has promised to have one of his lineage to be on the throne ruling and reigning forever and ever. When Jesus ascends, and Peter acknowledges his ascension in the same sermon, to receive as a reward of his sufferings the title deed to every nation on this earth, according to Daniel chapter 7. He sits upon the throne, and he's enthroned and coronated, given the crown, King of kings and Lord of lords, thus fulfilling the covenant promises to David that one from your lineage, the Son of David, Jesus, and also the Son of God, will rule and reign forever. Thus in Psalm 16, David speaks of Jesus prophetically, declaring of him that he will not ultimately see corruption. And he will not be abandoned to Hades. And the glorious hope of the gospel is that if you are in the son of David, Jesus Christ, who paved a way, who pioneered a path through death itself, triumphant, then you will not be abandoned to Hades either. But by the power of his death and his resurrection, you will enter victoriously through the grave into communion with the holy God, into his presence forever by virtue of his mercy seat where the sufficient sacrifice and shed blood that lay between his, and that uh, was shed by his body that lay between those angels in that tomb uh, signaled on the day when he was resurrected. Peter preaches Jesus attested by his ministry, his prophetic word, and thirdly, his nature, the necessity of his resurrection. Now back in Acts 2.32, Peter says this, or 23, excuse me. 24. God raised him up. Of course, God, the Father, raising Jesus, the Son. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for death to declare ultimate victory over Jesus Christ. Why is this the case? It's because of who Jesus is, his nature. Peter goes on to expound the nature of Jesus in verses 32 and following, and he references the, tr- the Trinity quite explicitly in this passage. He says, this Jesus, God raised up. Again, God the Son was raised by God the Father, and of that we are all, or we all are witnesses. Verse 32, being therefore exalted at the right hand, of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So we have three references to the Godhead here: God the Father, God the Son, and kids. What's number three? The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is correct. Here, Peter identifies the nature of Jesus as the second person of the Godhead, and as such, His nature. Portray, or displays to us, attests to us the necessity of the resurrection. Of course, he would rise from the dead because he is not merely a man, but he is a God. He is God himself who took on flesh, became a man to die for our sins. And this Jesus, Peter says, God the Father, if you will, raised him up. And of that, we all are witnesses. And then Furthermore, evidence of the nature of Jesus and his authority, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus himself has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus, according to his authority as the second person of the Trinity, made good on his promise to send a comforter, God the Holy Spirit, in his absence. So when he ascended to the Father, he gave instructions, as it were, to the Spirit, "'Go, be poured out on my servants.'" Go, be poured out on my apostles. And so God the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, signaled by a rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire, and other tongues spoken to all the hearers in Jerusalem that day, obeyed the voice of God the Son, and came upon the Spirit, and gave them power to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And this power was manifest in several ways. But perhaps the most profound is the understanding that Peter suddenly has. When Peter proclaims, and I imagine he doesn't have notes like I do today, you know, prepared each Sunday to present to you so as not to misrepresent the Word of God to the best of my ability, the Scriptures on their own terms. This is an apostle filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking from his memory of the Psalms, on the spot to the hearers and proclaiming precisely with clarity, and with his eyes open to the reality of God's holy word, the connections between the messianic psalms and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. and That the author of those scriptures of old spoke as a prophet of one to come, and that he and those with him, those disciples that traveled with him, and those that prayed and waited for the Spirit in the upper room had just witnessed the Messiah risen from the dead, and had just witnessed the power of his Holy Spirit granting to them understanding and ability and confidence to proclaim this message to all the hearers of Jerusalem on that day. And this would not have been an easy task. This was a crowd that had just conspired to kill the Son of God. And now his disciples are going out without fear of death, boldly proclaiming that they had just killed the very one who was God the Son, had the power over death, and rose from the dead. His nature, Jesus' nature is evident in the Trinity and the Trinity is seen in the understanding and proclamation of Peter that he wasn't just a man, but he was God the Son and he was God and man in his incarnation. We see his divinity testified to by Peter himself by citing Psalm 110.1, verse 24, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool when Peter echoes this reference, again, a Messianic Psalm, where David speaks of his Lord, that is, David speaks of Jesus Christ, this interpretation Jesus himself had given already in Matthew 22:41 41 through 46. By rhetorical question, Jesus asked the Pharisees, how is it that this is David's son, if David calls him his Lord? These, the most learned men, would likely memorize the Torah and could cite it chapter and verse off the top of their head. He's the most impressive in their intellect, their understanding, and their outward piety of all the religious leaders of their day, who compelled the attention of the people and set themselves in the seat of Moses and proclaimed to be an authority on the word. Were stumped when Jesus asked them, "How is it that Peter or that uh, David calls his son his Lord?" But you know who had the answer: a fisherman, a fisherman who spoke with boldness, confounding the wisdom of the wise. How did he do so? He was filled with the Holy Spirit and his eyes were opened to see that David spoke of his son who was his Lord, who was his Messiah, who would be killed and raised from the dead, ascended unto glory to rule and reign forever as victor over sin in the grave. Thus, in Jesus nation, the Trinity, the Divinity and the Ascension, Peter proclaims in the necessity of his resurrection, He must rise from the dead. Death cannot keep him in the ground. Not only will he be released from the pangs of death, but he will be released from the confines of this earth, and he will ascend unto the heavens, into the heavens. And what will he do there? He will receive, as we said before, the inheritance and the kingdom of David, as it were the right to rule and, his sovereignty and in his sovereignty control and rule and reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Thus in verse 36, as Peter draws his words to a close, he addresses the hearers again, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preaches Jesus attested by his ministry. His prophetic word, His nature, and His gospel. And in His gospel is the message of the resurrection. What is the message of the resurrection? Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and you just killed Him. Imagine hearing this, putting yourself in the shoes of these. Peter has said again in verse 23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, again 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Know for certain, because of the resurrection of the dead, you are forever guilty of the most incredible sin and state of rebellion against the Almighty that you could possibly imagine. Who did they kill? They killed the one that had the power to raise the dead and demonstrated it. Those two examples we referenced earlier by His mighty works. They killed the one who raised the little 12-year-old girl by the touch of His hand. They killed the one who, by his spoken word, after four days entombed, rose Lazarus from the grave. They killed the one who, by a voice of his direction and commandment, could still the storm and calm the sea. They killed the one who, in his very death, supplied the atoning blood on the mercy seat, so to speak, that would provide for them hope if they would turn from their sin, rejecting the Messiah. In their murderous rebellion, repent and believe. Peter preaches a certainty based upon the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, we all are witnesses. We know this happened, you know this happened, and because of the resurrection, Jesus stands to judge, and you are guilty. What gave Stephen, when he was proclaiming the gospel to his persecutors, the strength to endure stone after stone until he was ushered into glory. He saw a vision. What did he see a vision of? The resurrected Christ. He saw a vision of Jesus Christ standing before the right hand of the Father, standing as judge of his persecutors, one who had defeated the grave and will adjudicate his case and will ultimately judge those who reject the gospel. And so Stephen can be ushered into glory with confidence, proclaiming the message all along and filled with the Holy Spirit. Did his words not echo what Peter proclaimed, the message of resurrection? You are guilty, but he is a Savior. This responsibility that every sinner bears, if you realize the weight of it, in light of who Christ is, his resurrection... His inarguable mighty works, wonders, and signs, the prophetic word that prophesied of old, of His coming, and His nature, evident in everything that He accomplished and did. That leaves us responsible as sinners of the most weighty crime one could possibly imagine. And the crowds felt it that day. The same Holy Spirit that gave Peter the power to preach this gospel Came upon the sinners, and in their ears, as they heard the indictment of their own guilt, they cried out, verse 37. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to declare that this promise is going beyond just the audience that listened to him that day. It would be spread unto Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the book of Acts goes on to document the progress of the gospel. This gospel has reached Cross Lake, Minnesota. That's why we are a church and why we gather here today. This gospel will continue to be proclaimed then in nooks and crannies until every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth have received a witness of the resurrected Christ and as many as he appoints unto salvation have bowed before his majesty and declared, what must I do? I am guilty. I am worthy of death and hell. What must I do to be saved? And the answer for us, the answer for sinners today is the same for the sinners that first generation that killed Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. On the day when Peter proclaimed this first resurrection sermon, so to speak, as he preached Jesus attested by his ministry, the prophetic word, his nature, and gospel, another resurrection miracle occurred. 3,000 souls were resurrected from spiritual death. Have you been resurrected? Has your soul been resurrected from spiritual death? If so, then a message like this, I trust, rings the bells of your heart with joy. And that sense of gratitude. And if we had just but one more moment, if I had just more voice to offer, Lord, forgive me for those times when I grow weary in well-doing, when I take for granted or take lightly the weight of my sin and the glory of my salvation. This is the heart of a believer who has been saved by grace. When the gospel reminds him that a resurrection miracle has occurred in his own soul. But if you have not received that reassurance of your life hid in Christ because his atoning blood shed on the mercy seat of the cross, so to speak, has secured for you your salvation, then what is the message you ought to hear from this message today? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Saints, we serve a resurrected Savior. We have the same appeal in the absolute, certain, objective, inarguable testimony of God's sovereign power and Jesus' glorious authority that Peter had. We read of his ministry and his prophetic word when we open the scriptures. We see the testimony of his nature and the work that he has accomplished. And thus we are given marching orders, just as Peter and the other believers had from the first days of the church after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Returning to words like this, the early sermons of the early church reminds us But the power of the gospel is not diminished with time. But it is sufficient grace to save the lost even today if they would but repent and believe and then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer that many more would do so. Father, we pray that your word would go forth in this crooked generation to announce in clarity and power and truth that Jesus Christ alone is our hope for eternal life. I pray that your gospel would go forth and cut to the heart those who, upon this revelation of truth, realize that they have sinned against a mighty and holy God. Lord, I pray that you would return unto us the fear that is worthy of Jesus Christ, the one who calms the storm by his spoken word and defeats the grave in his conquering work of resurrection and now rules and reigns over this earth until every last enemy is placed under his footstool. And with that fear, may it be accompanied by awe and relief as we sing your praises. You're so worthy of them, Jesus, because you have saved us from the sin and hell that we deserve by the power of your cleansing blood. Now give us grace and confidence, we pray, to echo as Peter and the forebears in the faith did so long ago that there is hope in Christ alone. May we preach you, attested by your ministry, your word, your nature, and your gospel to our own souls, to our children, and for those who are far off, and as many as you call to yourself, even in our day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.